Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're gonna be interviewing a founder that has built and scaled and exited his business and now he's on the other side of the table. So I think that we're gonna be able to learn from both sides of the table very, very much. Uh, especially, you know, we're gonna be talking about data-driven applications, earth enterprise collaboration, machine learning, AI, you name it. So I guess uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Steve Lovelin. Welcome to the to the show today. Uh, thanks for having me. So, originally born and raised in Massachusetts. So, how was life there? Uh, it was great. Uh, we lived there um, until I was nine, and uh, my dad's family was from there. Um, and uh, when when I turned nine, he told me that we were moving to a place called Oregon, and uh, we actually didn't know how to pronounce Oregon correctly <laughs> when we were moving there, um, and so. Uh, going into third grade, myself and my three younger sisters, we packed up and moved to Oregon, soon to learn that it was called Oregon, and, uh, you know, uh, stayed there until all the way through high school. And and were your parents, like, entrepreneurs, or, or what were they doing? Uh, my parents were, uh, you know, they had, they had a lot of characteristics that would have made them successful entrepreneurs, in the sense they were great communicators. Um, one of the things that was instilled in us very early was uh, what it means to be a good teammate and to share and to give. And um, but my dad actually worked at um, technology companies, um, including like Wang Computers in Massachusetts and uh, Sequent Computers, um, which is a mid-market uh, company that moved us to Oregon, um, actually in the finance realm. And so, uh, you know, he traditionally worked at larger companies. And then my mom had the um, had to deal with uh, the four of us who were all very close in age. Um, but what was really neat and what I'm very grateful for was uh, kind of the reward system they set up for us as kids was all around. You know, you didn't get rewarded in a soccer game or a basketball game. If you scored points, you got rewarded for passing the ball or you got rewarded for extra hustle um, or setting up a teammate um, and working hard. Um, which, you know, this element of unselfishness, I think, uh, is one of the hallmarks of great teams. Got it. And then eventually you ended up going to Stanford, but why public policy? 
Uh, <laughs> great question. So public policy, I tried, I think, four different majors. And uh, I started out thinking I was going to be a math major and then tried uh, human biology, tried computer science. Um, and the math part I really liked. And so I got into economics. And then at the time, uh, there was an extra set of classes you could take to get a public policy degree on top of your economics degree. And so um, I ended up taking that and really enjoyed the program. And I guess this is where you really developed the, uh, the competitive side of you. You were part of the track and field team. Is that right? Uh, yes. So I, I was fortunate enough to be uh, on, a, on a team where we had, um, you know, some of my teammates uh, when I was there were, were on the Olympic team. Um, you know, folks like, you know, Michael Stember, Gabe Jennings, and um, I think he holds the American record in the marathon. Ryan Hall um, were all teammates of mine. And so uh, practices were harder than the meets, but it was a, it was a really good team. And um, lots of lessons learned. We had a great coach, um, Vin Lanana, who, uh, you know, recruited the, the top talent and pushed us pretty hard. And you were then the, one of the early employees of, uh, of a startup, but what got you into, into startup and especially into, into this company? Walk us through the process. Um, so I was, uh, finishing my senior year. A lot of my teammates were going to keep running for a year or two. And I kind of made the decision that, um, you know, I, I liked running and I, I was running times that probably would have allowed me to keep running, but it wasn't something I wanted to do. And I wanted to start the next chapter of my life. <clears throat> and, and about that time, um, you know, I had some internships where, uh, I got to work on, you know, some CRM software, um, which would come back to, to help when I started a company. Um, but learning about kind of all this productivity software and how to do sales, marketing and customer success operationally. Um, I was fascinated. And when I, I, I ended up, uh, uh, one of my classmates had started the company and they were looking for the first kind of non-technical hire, uh, reporting to a CEO and who had been an executive at Silicon Graphics. And so I was literally walking down University Avenue in Palo Alto and he said, Hey, come up, check out the office. I checked it out um, and basically didn't overthink it at that stage of my career because I was really trying to optimize for uh, how much I could learn and what sort of experiences and mentors I could get around me. Um, but little did I know about you know 90 days into my tenure, the company wasn't doing very well. And at the time, I didn't know what questions to ask, you know, how much cash does the company have in the bank? Um, you know, what's the customer traction, any of that stuff. I was, I was very green when it came to operating. Um, but one of the things that they asked me to do was to go figure out how to acquire new customers. And I ended up signing up a bunch of customers at a, at a pretty rapid rate relative to the, the previous year's sales. And, uh, then I got a phone call from, uh, the chairman of the board who said, Hey, we're, we're cutting back, um, the resources pretty dramatically. And, um, would you want to run the company? And I, I had no idea what that meant. Um, I remember I was home in Oregon and talked to my parents about it. And, uh, my parents said, Hey, if you're going to learn a lot, you should, you should do it. Um, you know, the company has some really interesting angel investors involved, involved. And so I ended up, uh, running that company for four years, um, and getting the experience of, you know, running board meetings, hiring and firing, managing through difficult financial times, um, and also a bunch of tactical um, 
things around culture, uh, how to think about, you know, the size of the market you're going after. It was, it was really a, like four years packed with, uh, making a lot of mistakes, <laughs> um, but eventually getting the company to a place where it was, uh, you know, we had hundreds of customers. It was, we could run it at break even. And at that point, um, after four years, I kind of, I made the decision that I wanted to go start a company from scratch. And, um, about that time, one of my close mentors, uh, a gentleman by the name of Bob Cohn, who co-founded a company called Octel, uh, that was one of the original enterprise voicemail systems and ended up winning that market and selling to Lucent. After going public, uh, he told me that I should go back to business school. And I said, I, why would I go back to business school when you know I've been managing a company? I think I, I'm, I'm ready to go start something. And he said, <clears throat> you probably could, but it'd be great if you went back and got classically trained like some of your peers who, you know, went and did consulting or did banking or some of these other things to understand kind of that language. And so I ended up applying to Stanford Business School. I got in um, about that time. Uh, some of my friends who started a company called Palantir, I was helping them with their go-to-market um, and some of their operations and became an advisor to that company during the course of business school. And that's where um, I met Adam Evans, who was going to be my co-founder at Relate IQ. Um, and so that was kind of the whole progression from school to first professional, um, endeavor to, uh, going back to business school before I started Relate IQ. And really incredible because the, uh, I mean, I think that the valuation of, of Palantir is, is pretty much in like around 40 billion or so. So, um, unbelievable for you to, to be part of, of that journey early on. So, uh. Really amazing, and I guess from from affinity, the uh, what would you say? Because typically, I mean, people the advice is, hey, you know, like start as a maybe you know an employee, you know, one of the early employees. But here you go from employee to literally running the business, as you were saying. Uh, I mean, incredible experience. So, what was your biggest takeaway from this experience? Uh, there was a bunch. Um, I, th I think it was where I learned the most. It was a very humbling experience. Uh, because I had no idea what I was doing. And so basically, um, you know, one of the takeaways is you can't kind of, you, you, you have to be <clears throat> working in a market um, where, where you have an opportunity to get big. And in this case, we were selling software to universities and trade associations who um, weren't going to pay us a lot of money for the software platform we were offering. And so we got you know, our target market was like the top 120 universities in the U.S. And we got to 80% of those, 85% of those in 24 months. And we basically executed really well, but we were executing in a really small market and it wasn't expanding. And so then we had to pivot our revenue model into selling recruitment advertising into these private professional social networks. <clears throat> and at the time, LinkedIn was emerging and they were capturing all those dollars. And so um, just the importance of knowing the problem you're solving, but also whether that problem has the opportunity to be a big business and how you can win in that large market. So we were in a small market. Uh, I think the other side of it was <clears throat> the importance of culture. And, you know, if you, if you get the right group of people in the right culture in a big market, magical things can happen. And in this case, um, because I, you know, I wasn't the founder of the company. I had to kind of readjust the culture. I think we had a really good culture um, as we move forward, but it was it was hard 
at some point you have to have both because we were executing really well, but because we were execu- executing in a small market, we didn't get the same momentum or tailwinds that some of these companies that, that grow faster have. Um, and so, you know, as I was thinking about my next company, those were two things that I really wanted to make sure that we got right. It was the culture, but also that we were playing in a really big market. And, you know, it's interesting because the, um, typically a real master's degree is when you're, when you're running a business and when you deal with, with all the issues. So, I mean, here you are, uh, typically in business school, the, the, the final project or, or whatever that is, is like perhaps like building a startup and seeing where that goes. You actually, you know, build it. You, you were in it. And then you go back to business school. So, I mean, at this point, you were almost teaching the professor. So what did you learn from the experience here of going back to business school? Uh, I wouldn't say I was teaching the professors. I mean, there's a lot of, I think I probably took the, um, the classes, uh, in a way that as I was evaluating and kind of, um, reflecting on what I was learning, it was, oh, if I'd known that, if I had that insight around organizational behavior, or I knew that, um, kind of these studies around marketing, you know, I would have, I would have changed. And so I felt like for me, and I think business school is a different experience and school is a different experience for everyone because everyone's different. But <clears throat> for me, being able to kind of have that real life experience to draw on made the lessons a lot more real. Um, and also the, the other thing that, you know, anytime you're fortunate to go to an institution that has, you know, students from 54 different countries, I think in my class, uh, that's small, that all had a different breadth of experience. You learn from your classmates as well. And so, um, I felt like I learned a ton in those two years and, and built a bunch of skills and tools that I would be able to use later on. So in your case, what were the insights that you were seeking? Um, you know, how to articulate, you know, the, solve the, the market problem. Like how do you actually articulate a strategy? Um, and how are people classically trained to do that? Um, you know, bolstering kind of, you know, financial skills. Cause they teach you, you know, you're, you're in classes with, kids who worked in private equity and hedge funds. And so how do they um, kind of think about the world and how do they analyze companies? And then probably the, mo- the most interesting classes for me were around organizational behavior and, um, you know, all the, the bias that we have and how that impacts, um, how that impacts how people interact with each other in a team that's trying to accomplish a common goal um, and just being able to check for those things. Um, I think, uh, was, was extremely valuable. Got it. And obviously here you met uh, Adam Evans, your, your co-founder. So, so how did that happen? Were you guys in the same class or how did you guys meet? No, we, he was at Palantir. And so we met the first day I was at Palantir and one of the kind of advisor roles that I took on was helping, uh, figure out the healthcare vertical at Palantir. And Adam was the CTO of that group. And so the two of us, um, we're fortunate to meet each other and our skill sets really complemented each other um, really well. And, you know, it was just kind of magic when we'd go work on a project together. As far as kind of the level of intensity, insights, kind of different points of view. And then I think we were both, um, you know, had, had a lot of desire to, to build things of meaning and impact. And so we had a level of intensity that just we kind of fed off each other and, um, and yeah, so that, that was kind of how we met. And over that course of a year and a half, when I was at business school and he was at Palantir, we hung out all the time. And then there was a moment where we both decided, Hey, we should start a company. Uh, and within the first hour, uh, I think given 
we both had kind of the Palantir uh, insights around how data was being used to solve really complex problems that we wanted to do something that was data driven, but wanted it to be not kind of in the intelligence community or government related. How can we, how can we do something that is enterprise related? Because I'd spent time, you know, at Affinity Circles and he'd also had two other um, entrepreneurial experiences and companies at a young age where he was kind of uh, forced to learn a whole bunch of things at um, the healthcare company he was at, but also he in high school, he had a uh, hosting company that he worked on. And so we were both kind of in our lives, probably relatively young, but experience wise, had both had a lot of, uh, you know, pretty intense professional experiences where we made a lot of mistakes and learned, but also developed skills that would be highly valuable and selling to the enterprise. And so uh, I still have kind of pictures of this where in the first hour we said, hey, wouldn't it be amazing if the, uh, the enterprise systems that were powering the decisions people were making around relationships uh, could actually have fully automatic population. And then you could actually do machine learning and insights around kind of the, the data exhaust that's, that's coming off of all those relationships to recommend, you know, whether it's a sales prospect, an existing customer, a partner, um, potentially a recruit in the future. But how could we kind of capture all that data so that teams who are managing relationships um, can actually figure it out. And the, the problem we saw was that all the existing systems in the market, um, whether it was kind of the legacy Siebel uh, type CRMs or Salesforce, which was the dominant player at the time, um, which was cloud-based, the, the, the issue with it was um, people weren't entering data. And one of the common things you'd hear is, oh, did you put it in Salesforce? And so we, we built a prototype to see if we could actually solve that problem where we were taking advantage of all the APIs that have become available with email and calendar um, to build a, a CRM that automatically uh, populated itself and then automatically had the history. And it would not only be automatic and intelligent, but it would change the way collaboration happened because as this data would come in, instead of me calling Adam and saying, hey, did you follow up with that customer? The data would automatically be inside the platform itself. <clears throat> and so kind of what we did and probably the learning from this, which was interesting is we started out by articulating the problem, which we said relationship management's broken for teams. And then we started working through what is the ideal solution going to look like to solve this problem five to 10 years from now. <clears throat> and we basically landed on, um, you know, all things being equal, we're going to optimize for making it the most automatic. We're going to have to take advantage of this data in a way that, um, really increases productivity for the end user. We're going to have to rethink privacy, security, and that's going to be really important as we're selling these customers, but also we're going to have to rethink some of the models of how automatic data sharing happens. And then we're going to have to make the design something that, you know, this is back in 2011, is matching what consumer experiences are going to be. And so uh, we kind of built the initial prototype, went and validated it with, I think, like 10 or 12 customers uh, in a three-week period before we even started the company, just to see, is this what we want to dedicate our lives to? And I still remember driving back from San Francisco with him, where it was like, we were pitching like the former head of sales from a rather large company, or current head of sales at a large company. And the woman said to us, she's like, hey, can I buy this? And we got in the car and basically said, hey, we need to start this company. Like, the product doesn't even really work yet, but the the kind of primitives that we were hitting on 
um, were spot on for what the market needed. Uh, and so we started the company in 2011 and, um, that was, that was kind of the beginning. So what were the, um, the responses or the pattern that you guys were looking for when you were going out to, to speak with this initial, you know, people, you know, with this idea? Yeah, it's a good question. Our prototype wasn't, um, you know, the most exhaustive <laughs> platform. So, uh, but it, it, it at least visually told the story. So we would spend usually the first 15 or 20 minutes asking discovery questions to them about um, what's working and what's not working about their uh, existing system and, and kind of really set the stage for the pain because we actually felt confident if the problem was really there, we could, there was enough uh, substance in the category, like in our ideas that we could solve it over time. But we wanted to validate that this was really a problem and that there was going to be demand for us to go um, and kind of go after this really large market at the time where, um, you know, the incumbents were pretty entrenched. And so we were just looking, we were looking for pain. Got it. And obviously, the um, once you got this and, and you got back in the car and you say, we got to start this company and we got to start it now, what happened after? So I remember we drove back. And um, we drove back, drove back to Palo Alto because it was in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, we called, um, you know, our, our uh, corporate lawyer who was going to incorporate for us at Gunderson, uh, Luis Soto. So we called him and we said, hey, start the incorporation. Um, and then uh, we had, we basically said, okay, we're going to start. Let's, let's pick the date. So we said, like, we're going to start the company. Um, you know, in July, like in two weeks. And um, we had one person who we were going to hire, uh, an engineer named uh, Gary, who we were going to hire, and then uh, an ops hire, um, Steve Hickian. And uh, so the four of us started at my house. Uh, my house kind of became the office. And my wife at the time was eight months pregnant. Um, so we started and we raised a $2 million seed round from... Um, a uh, bunch of individuals, but Excel um, was the big lead, and then uh, Morgan Baylor Ventures, um, and so we were off to the races. So um, Ping, who's my partner now at Excel, um, you know, led the seed round. Very and interestingly, cool. uh, what was <laughs> what happened was I I got introduced to him through a mutual friend, and when we met, he was asking me, "Hey, have you ever thought about venture?" and um, I said, no, I'm starting this company. And he was like, well, you know, you should really think about venture. And then I told him what we were doing. And then it immediately changed into a uh, fundraising conversation. And we were very fortunate to have him as an early investor. And were you worried about getting a seed round from an institutional? Uh, I wasn't. Um, only because I think we were locked in on the customer and the opportunity and uh, the resources that were available you know, we want, we always wanted to surround the company with the best people possible to help us achieve our mission. And that, that was the, uh, that was kind of from the outset, um, something that we were, we were pretty dogmatic about. And, uh, at the time ping, uh, was leading a bunch of the big data efforts at Excel and our whole thesis was around the ability to use big data to start to power some of these business applications in particular CRM. So he was a perfect fit for the for what we were trying to do. Yeah, so what was essentially the business model of Relate IQ and uh, how you guys were monetizing this so that people that are listening, they get it? 
Yeah. So it was, um, the, every market's different, but for us, the good news was, um, CRM software was <clears throat> at the time pretty straightforward where you would pay a per user, uh, license fee per month. And, you know, uh, on the lower end, kind of the basic CRMs were charging, you know, hundred bucks per user per month. And it got up to 250 or $300 per user per month. And the market was growing at 12% a year. So you were basically having all these people moving productivity applications into the cloud. And CRM was one of the largest, fastest growing categories. Um, thanks to the, you know, Salesforce basically pioneering it. Got it. And the, uh, you know, how much, how much capital you guys raised for this? You raised quite a bit, I, I believe. Yeah, so we we raised um, two million bucks in the seed round, and our whole um, kind of plan in the seed round was uh, we need to validate as quickly as possible um, kind of the feature set and which market segment we were going to start with. And so we had a big vision that we were going to go after and try and disrupt the whole category. But if you try and disrupt the whole category at the beginning, in particular in this type of market. Um, you know, there's so many features that need to be built for different segments that identifying kind of who our core customer was was really important. And so with our seed round, we went from something that was unusable to, uh, you know, we got like 20, what we call alpha beta customers. They were alpha, but, you know, really beta customers who were using it and Excel kind of saw that and they led our series A, which I think we raised um, seven or eight million bucks in that round. Um, and then uh, we kind of grew that number privately. And, and one of the things, one interesting strategic choices we made was we kept the company completely um, kind of uh, private. We did not have any public presence other than like a splash page on our website. And we just spent time with customers uh, to the point where if you weren't a, uh, a developer, you were going desk side to go learn from, you know, how users were using this. We were just iterating the feature set so that we had an army of, of users who were really excited about what we're doing. And we got to about 100 customers uh, who were private beta who were using it. And uh, we went to them and it, we could look at the metrics and see that people were loving the product. They were using it. It was their, it was their system of record for sales, but it was a very particular uh, focus. It was people that were on Gmail or Office 365, they had less than 100 reps and they hadn't built out a whole bunch of workflow on any of the incumbent solutions. And so we knew if we went into one of those deals, our product was dramatically better than the alternatives and we would have a really high conversion rate. So we started, we kind of got to that point um, and we raised another 20 million um, from APC uh, and launched the company publicly. Um, we were fortunate to get coverage like that day in the Wall Street Journal. We converted all those companies to paid. And then um, we kind of set the company up to grow. So, so from that point, it was kind of like quarter over quarter, we're going to, we got to grow, we're going to grow in this segment. And then we, the, the product strategy was to keep adding a service area to the product so we could uh, increase our addressable market. Um, and then uh, we went another year kind of operating, growing, um, spending tons of time with customers. And at that point, it was also, we, we'd taken the time to build out, I think, a pretty, uh, substantial um, executive team, and which took a lot of work. That was probably one of the more surprising things is how long it took to hire executives uh, into the company. Um, because you're, you know, I think the the 
the normal um, approach to this is like, okay, we're going to light up sales in, in the second quarter. So we need to hire the salesperson by second quarter, but really you need those people, you know, two quarters before to get onboarded and everything like that. So I'd say that was one of my uh, hard earned uh, learning lessons from that period of time. Um, but we then raised the the series C and then shortly after that uh, we were acquired by Salesforce. Very cool. And we'll talk about the, um, the acquisition in, in a bit, but I want to just touch base, you know, on, on the journey as a whole. Was there one moment where you said, oh, my God, I think we're going to die? Um, <laughs> there were a lot of moments. <laughs> and it, it wasn't that the company was going to die. It was just, uh, you know, this the whole process is extremely hard, which is why I think um, you have to be really passionate about the, the problem you're solving and um, deeply uh, committed to your teammates because um, you know, we, we had four values inside the company that we really, uh, deeply committed to, which was people, moments, ideas, and results. Uh, the people side of it was treat your teammates, treat anyone who touches the company with a deep amount of respect because we were building relationship software. And so if we couldn't live it offline, um, you know, how, how are you going to live it online? And, and I think kind of the neat parts about that is at one point, you know, after I think we were, you know, 60 or 70 people, we were, we had a engineer who unfortunately, um, was going back to Google, um, after being with us for a year and a half, who contributed a lot to the company. And, uh, we were, we hadn't really dealt with that before. And I was just going to send an email, um, out to the company thanking him. And, uh, one of our, one of my teammates came to me and said, Hey, people is one of our values. And, and this person has delivered a lot of value. Why don't we send them off? Even though we don't want them to leave, like, why do we send them off the way that our company would want to do that if, if we're really aspiring to our values? And so I sent an email at the all hands meeting on Friday, we ended up, um, having the person stand up, they got a standing ovation. We got them a gift and thanked them for everything they did for the company. And I think, uh, those sorts of, um, moments as a culture are the ones that like we're, we're not just you're doing things right but people are calling each other out and giving feedback even to me as as at the time as a ceo uh was so valuable and and made those tougher times easier um because we were kind of committed to our strategy and our routines um but i mean it was the, the whole journey was hard I, mean, I remember a month in when we moved out of my house because uh we had our son lucas and it was probably not the best place to have an office. Um, I remember I hadn't slept in like a couple days and we were building desks in our mountain view, new mountain view office. And I just, I remember just being so delirious. Like I need, I need to, I need to get sleep or I'm not going to be able to make any critical decisions for this company. Um, and so just, and then figuring out how to, how to kind of adjust your routines to make sure everyone's getting what they need. Yeah. Um, was, you know, th those moments happened every couple of weeks because you're, you're constantly being introduced to problems that you've never solved before. Of course, of course. Yeah. So I guess the, um, you know, as you were pointing to, eventually the, the acquisition of Salesforce happens. Uh, how, how this did happen? I mean, can you kind of like walk us through, through the process? I mean, was it uh, an inbound that you got interest or was it a partnership or that you guys were working on? Or tell us, tell us the, the, the process of, of how this, this come to, to fruition. Yeah, it was kind of uh, out of nowhere. So we were, um, you know, I think six weeks before we'd announced our Series C 
and um, we were starting to move up market um, and start to get some some larger companies on the platform after building out a bunch of our integrations. And so uh, we, I ended up having a couple people reach out to me saying, "Hey, Mark wants to um, grab coffee with you. Are you open to it?" And um, you know different connections and so it was it was literally an inbound email to go have coffee and uh we ended up meeting and um getting along really well and uh you know from there things move pretty quickly um just because these are these are discussions and and things that you don't kind of want to sit on and so uh yeah it was it was an inbound kind of request and then and then an initial meeting so how long did it take from inbound to to closing uh i mean after that the process took like six months i think to get through diligence and align and even for us to make the decision that that's what we wanted to do um but it was it was a really hard process because you know having been been on the other side now um you know there's a lot of these discussions that happen and then and then uh for one reason or another they they fall apart and the transaction doesn't happen and so Uh, we were fortunate enough to have a great board who was very supportive and, and, um, made, you know, made sure to say like, Hey, we got to run the company as if this isn't happening. And so for that six month period as a management team, you know, we're running the company knowing that this might not happen just because there's so much that has to go right for a transaction to happen. Um, and so we were, we were very fortunate to, to, have the have the deal come through um but at the same time like we were running it as if we're going to keep going and so as a as a leadership team that was that was definitely one of the harder work experiences we've ever had very cool and i and i understand that the transaction was valued at 390 million at least they reported on the media so really really good outcome that's a that's amazing so so steve after this you spent it you know obviously a, a couple of years um with the salesforce it was about five years or so um you know maybe as part of the transaction also because, you know, Salesforce as well is a great company and perhaps that was great learning for you. But then you you went on to uh, to Axel and, you know, this is uh, Axel Partners. And this is interesting because typically founders, you know, they just go and they do it again. Why did you go to the other side of the table? Uh, I think I was very fortunate in, um, in my entrepreneurial journey to have great people around the table, investors like Ping, um, advisors and outside board members like Bob Cohn and Bill Campbell, who <clears throat> really showed the impact you can have on early stage companies. And so, uh, I didn't really overthink it. I think it was a moment where I was kind of finishing my second year at Salesforce and I was missing the the early stage kind of company formation moments. Um, and so I kind of started thinking about saying, Hey, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great if I, you know, I was spending some time in my free time, angel investing and spending time with early stage companies, but what if I did this full time? And so, uh, I reached out to ping and we'd had the discussion, you know, all, all the way going back to pre relate IQ and all the other partners here, are fantastic. And so I ended up kind of making a pretty quick decision that, you know, I want to come here, be a partner and help work with the world's best entrepreneurs. Uh, and so for the last couple of years, I've been fortunate enough to do that. Very cool. And obviously, Axel, 
very well known for investments like Facebook and, and others. No, But I guess in your case, um, you know, when we're talking about investors and VCs, we're also talking about pattern recognition. And uh, in, in your in your case, you know, now being on the other side of the table and, and having, you know, been at this for, for some time now, what does pattern recognition look like? At what point do you know that a founder has the right ingredients to be successful? Uh, I mean, I think it's hard and, you know, these, these companies and, um, you know, they take time to build and, uh, you know, when you're investing early, it's not like there's a ton of data about the company or, um, you know, the, the operational progress that they made so far. And so to me, I tend to look for, uh, you know, entrepreneurs who have the the capability of being world-class um, and, and not just where they are today, but what is the rate at which they're growing and learning and their capacity to evolve with the requirements of the job. Cause what you're doing when you're a five person company is very different than what you're doing as a hundred person company, a thousand person company. And so, um, you know, does the founder have a vision for the future and do they have the, the chops to take whatever unique attributes and advantages they have and surround themselves with a great team to go accomplish that? I think the problem set that they're going after has to has to be large and feel large, and there has to be some sort of uh, trend that uh, is kind of out of their control that they have an insight around that that creates kind of the why now. Um, and if you put those things together, uh, you know you can have the opportunity to have a pretty exciting journey in partnering with them. And the, the moments when those things come together. I don't think they happen that often. And, and, and probably the fourth thing for me is it has to be a, you know, you have to have a connection to the team in a way that um, you're excited to work with them and they're excited to work with you to, to go do something really hard. So as you're talking about connection, you know, there's, there's one thing that, that really came to mind, and that is connection between you and the founder once the investment has already been made. And I guess more connection at a board level. So what have you seen from from those founders, you know, especially the ones that you have already invested in, from those founders that are able to really manage effectively their boards? What does that look like? Uh, I think the ones in particular when they're they're early and they're just getting started, that they have the ability to really communicate what they're trying to accomplish in a way that allows the company to operate. And so, uh, you know. I'll give you an example. Um, we're fortunate to be invested in a company called Ironclad, and uh, the CEO and founding team, Jason and Kai, there. Uh, you know, when we met them, it was I think an eleven-person team. Uh, they uh, had you know ten or twelve customers uh, that were using the product, but they hadn't built out any of the functions yet, and they hadn't really put together. It was in their heads, but they hadn't really put together like how they could what are the pieces that are required to really grow this thing year over year, but they had the capacity to do it. And so we partnered with them. And one of the things we did early on was agree on what the plan was, what the mission of the company was, what the values were with how they want to interact with each other. And, and um, they kind of articulated that in a really distinct way that is a winning plan. And then we're there as investors to kind of support that. And, and that connection, the ability to kind of agree on, Hey, here's what they're trying to accomplish. Therefore, here's how we can help you. I think is a is a really healthy thing. And and for me, I look for that, which is we need to be able to figure out how I can help you and what you're trying to accomplish. 
And you need to be able to articulate that, not just for me, but also for the people that you're going to hire for your customers. And, um, you know, the best founders I've been able to work with or even observe, um, are really good at that. They're really good at, uh, articulating what they're trying to do. So let's say, you know, now that, that you're really looking at things from the investor side and, and thinking about what has, you know, in terms of trends, what has the, the biggest potential uh, down the line, which, which, what are you looking for? I mean, what are the, the, the industries or the things that you're seeing that have the, the biggest amount of potential down the line? Uh, I, I think um, we're still, we are still in the moment where a lot of um, the applications we use at work are transforming the way we work. And so now that there's this explosion of, you know, SaaS apps inside companies that every team has their own SaaS app and also our ability through APIs to connect with those SaaS apps, we're able to kind of change the way people work and make them dramatically more effective. But I think um, it's also creating a whole bunch of data that can be utilized. And I think we're still at the beginnings of, you know, going from automation to real intelligent applications. and. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of that over the next five to 10 years. And you, you see that kind of in our investment in a company like Productive, which is helping companies understand what productivity apps are actually being used um, and how they're being used and how they can adjust um, the platform that their employees are working on to the growth of, uh, uh, to the growth of companies like, um, you know, Scale API, which just recently launched a, a, a a new financing where there's such a demand for training data to build these intelligent applications and workflows. Um, and so I think, I think we're kind of still scratching the surface of the impact that data and data driven applications are going to have on the way that we work. And when we're thinking about data and also AI, now everyone seems to be doing AI. How do you filter through the noise? You know, I think we're still very early in that and, I think we're building the foundation to be able to have those things impact um, the way companies are run and the way people work. Um, but today, it's still a lot of the applications are just um, capturing the training data and the behavior that's going to be used to build more intelligent and AI-driven applications. And so we look for companies, you know, like you know, an Ironclad that I mentioned earlier, where. Um, they're managing all the workflow around contracts inside the enterprise. So the red lines going back and forth, what clauses are being changed. They're effectively building a training data set that can be used to, in the future, more intelligently create and collaborate around contracts. Um, that actually isn't in the product yet, but they're positioned to do it, given kind of where, uh, kind of the state of where the end users are and where the training data is. Got it. Got it. And I guess now that that you have been on on both sides of the table, if you had that opportunity to go back to that moment where you were, you know, perhaps uh, brainstorming with uh, with your co-founder at Relate IQ with um, with uh, with Adam Evans, uh, what that company or or thinking about doing it or not, now knowing what you know now, what would be that one piece of uh, business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a business and why? I think. Um... The thing I would I would reinforce is, uh, you know, you can't you can't skip steps, and so um, I think 
as you're developing your company, you know, you have to first validate the problem and then, then you have to do all the testing on the solution and then you have to pick your segments and you have to, um, you know, and that all takes iteration. And if you try and do things, you want to do as much as you can and things in parallel, but there's certain things you can't graduate till the next step until you, till you finish it. And so, um, that would probably be one thing. And then the second thing would be, um, just really, uh, reinforcing and doubling down on culture. I mean, at the end of the day, um, if you're playing in, if you're solving a problem that means something in a market that is really going to develop, it's all about the team and the people that you bring on that journey. And so, you know, it's kind of just keep your focus on getting the right people and creating the right environment for them to work in. Got it. That's super, super powerful, super powerful, Steve. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, S Laughlin at Excel.com. Amazing. And any Twitter or LinkedIn that you're using as well? Uh, I'm on there, but email, I'm, I'm pretty responsive on email. All righty. Fantastic. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.